Hey everybody, welcome to the Performance Anxiety Podcast. I'm your host, Mark, and I want to thank our sponsor, AKG, for sending us their Podcaster Essentials Kit. The Lira mic and headphones that come in it are amazing, and they're the perfect, affordable way to start your own podcast, if you've ever wanted to do such a thing. Now this week, we take a left turn. I invited a chef to be my guest. His name is Jay Rifle, and he just beat Bobby Flay with a mincemeat pie. And that's why I reached out. His supper club, Edible History, takes recipes from ancient manuscripts and recreates them to give diners a literal taste of history. But he didn't start out as a chef. We talk about his early life, somehow dual enrolling in high school and college, and finding an interesting loophole. Writing movies in LA, and then eventually leaving to bake bread in the Midwest. We also discuss how bread is like puppies. Whipped cream guilt, ordering herbs from witches, and a whole lot more. Jay gives us a little behind-the-scenes peek at how cooking competitions are created, as he's been on both Chopped and Beat Bobby Flay. Check out Brooklyn-based Edible History on social media. Go to ediblehistorynyc.com to check out some amazing menus. Follow us at Performance ANX on social media. Rate and review us, please. Merch is available at performanceanx.threadless.com. And we love coffee. And you can treat us, if you like, at ko-fi.com slash performanceanxiety. This story takes some really interesting twists and turns, like a pretzel. So grab a mead and a plate of table cheese or fruits and nuts and settle in to Jay Rifle on Performance Anxiety, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast family. Hi, this is Jay Rifle. I'm from Edible History Supper Club. Uh, we have a cookbook coming out called The History of the World in 10 Dinners, and I'm on the Performance Anxiety Podcast. You want to call more? Hey, this is Jay Rifle. Ah, hey, this is Jay Rifle. Wow, that's really bad now. I had one in me, I guess. Hey, this is Jay Rifle on the Performance Anxiety Podcast. Um, I'm the executive chef at Edible History. We also have a cookbook coming out in probably 2023 called The History of the World in 10 Dinners. You can follow me on Instagram and follow Edible History. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. Let me pull up my notes here because I have some. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> I do not. No, no. I hope. Hopefully, you don't need them, but we'll see. I mean, yeah. there's some weird stuff in what you do. So, yes, there is. <laughs> I have notes about the weird stuff. That well, I have. That's good. <laughs> well, I know you've. We we spoke a little earlier in the week, and you know you you've actually led a couple different professional <laughs> lives. So I want to talk a little bit about as much of it as we can. And sure. uh, it's, let's see, it's two o'clock. So I may be taking a pull on my, my, uh, Buffalo trace here. Can't argue with that. Ah, uh, there we go. It's a lazy Sunday. So it's, uh, <laughs> Indeed. it's, I think it's necessary today. All right. So what you do. Okay. And, and so for the, the listeners, I'm going to explain that, how I discovered you and what you do. One of I love food. I love eating. I really enjoy cooking. I don't know anything about it. I've never been trained on any of it. So some of my questions may be very basic for you. So Not please just bear with me. Um, but my wife and I love to watch Beat Bobby Flay. <laughs> and so we were watching it one night and... Jay comes on and, and it's you win the battle and it's 
you challenged Bobby to mincemeat pie. Right. And I thought it was crazy because I, they mentioned in your bio that you work with a lot of historical recipes. And I remember I had a, uh, a great uncle who's a priest who loved mincemeat pie. And he would come over for Thanksgiving and he was the they would always have a mincemeat pie for him and he was the only one that ate it because it sounded absolutely <laughs> disgusting but watching you prepare it i'm like this this is really interesting there's a i'm i'm you know i'm a little kid thinking mincemeat pie this sounds like you know scraps of chicken and beef and i have no idea what the hell was in it and i'm like okay you know what watching you make this recipe made me want to try it so i'm like this and then finding out that you work with a lot of other ancient recipes historical recipes really fascinated me so i wanted to have you on the show to talk about how you got into that but i found out through talking with you that you were also a writer (laughs) so have you always been creative? I mean, what 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 were you into as a kid? Was it more writing? Was cooking interesting to you when you were younger? How did you get into so many creative endeavors, so many different creative endeavors? So as far as cooking goes, the funny thing is like, I come from a, uh, like a very professorial family. Like both my mother and father were college professors. Okay. My father was a molecular biologist. My mother was a, was a microbiologist. Oh, wow. And, and my dad, um, taught me like basic chemistry through cooking when I was like a little kid. Um, my whole like childhood was a lot of this, like, let's learn stuff. Yeah. My, my father was this, was this incredibly knowledgeable person who was incredibly patient and really good at explaining things. So the funny thing is if you asked him a question, he would sit you down and give you a really long answer. And if you needed to know a bunch of like, additional information before you could understand it, he would teach you that first. Oh, wow. That's kind of the, you know, that's kind of the, 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 the background that I have. Interesting. Um, This is very science, science sciencey kind of thing. And when I grew up, I was assuming I was going to be a scientist. And then I got really interested in like movies and literature and music and that kind of fun stuff. And my father actually died. I grew up with my father and he died when I was very, very young. I was 17. Wow. Um, so I kind of raised myself and did a very bad job of it, but I had like endless fun that. in uh, <laughs> in college. I studied film in college, then I worked in the film industry for a bit. Then I oh wow, I transitioned into writing. Where where did uh, you study film? film? Uh, at University of California, San Diego, which is not particularly a great film school, but I did it because I did this weird thing where I co-enrolled in college when I was in high school, then stealthily dropped out of high school and didn't graduate from high school, but did graduate from college. Oh my God. So, that's amazing. Yeah. It was very silly. Um, <laughs> my kids would I, love to figure out how to do that right now. Well, I found out there's, there's in California at the time, there was no four year requirement for anything but English to enter the California school system. Uh, university system. So I made a deal with my English professor that if I read the entire canon that he was able to, um, you know, like teachers pick from a group of books and they say, right. Oh, we're going to read this one and this one and this one, yeah. you know, but he said, if I read the entire thing and, um, 
just came in once a week and talked to me, he passed me. Oh my gosh. So he passed me and I just stayed in college. It was very weird. It was a tricky little, it was an end run. That's around, uh, fascinating. <laughs> yeah. But, um, wow. yeah, so it was a super, I was a film nerd and then I like went into working in, you know, I made TV commercials for a bit and okay. then I segued into writing and that drove me absolute bananas. I wrote a bunch of, you know, like schlocky stuff for like the sci-fi channel. I was going to say, I, I see four screenplays. Yeah. Time Lock, The Apocalypse, actually starring Sandra Bernhard, which is pretty cool. Yeah, who I actually, who I actually met the one time and I was, I was totally, I was, I was all geeked out about yeah. it. <laughs> she went, that, darling, I love the script. And I was like, sure, sure you did. Sure you did. Thanks, Sandra. But um, she was awesome. Um, I mean, the, the problem is, yes, I wrote a bunch of films. I wrote a bunch of films that sold. I wrote a bunch of films that got made. I wrote a bunch of films that I was proud of, but I never managed to do all those things at once. <laughs> <laughs> Which was kind of soul-destroying. Um, I can imagine, but you know what? It's a lot more than than I ever got. I mean, I, I've, <laughs> I've got some friends out in L.A. that I've, I've written for them for a few years and kind of stopped because nothing ever went anywhere. So the fact that you got any one of those things done, just, <laughs> it, I think is awesome. It was, it was an odd ride. I'll, I'll give it to that. Um, but so then I basically had a kind of a crisis that I moved to like this crazy farm in the middle of nowhere and learned to bake bread. Oh. <laughs> okay. Well, and, and the thing is I had always cooked and I had always really, really liked cooking and really enjoyed. It was like, I'm a terribly anxious and depressed person. And like cooking was like the one time that was just really, really fun. And there's an immediacy to cooking that is the exact opposite of like writing. Oh yeah. I can, I can so, understand that. And I, and I still do write, although I mostly do it for myself now and like write crazy books and stuff like that. Although we've recently sold a historical cookbook to Rizzoli Press, who are totally amazing. And we're super excited about that. And it comes out in like a year and a half. So I can't wait to find out about that. So we, yeah, we're... About that. that's really cool. That's one of the things that takes a lot of my time right now. But yeah, so I... I I sat on this farm for six months and then I came to New York and I went to pastry school and studied French pastry because oh. I figured that was like the closest thing to like chemistry and science, which I was comfortable with. Okay. You know? Okay. And while I was doing that, I started like, you know, I got really interested in like the molecular gastronomy like uh, stuff. Oh yeah. And I, tr I trained at a famous molecular astronomy restaurant here in New York and they trained it, you know, in fine dining. And for a second, I thought I wanted to do that. And then I realized that I wanted to have a life and still be able to write stuff. Right. Yeah. And, <laughs> and that's not really doable. If you work in those kind of restaurants, These places are amazing. And a lot of my friends came out of there, but like, I realized I wanted to do something for myself. So first yeah. I started this crazy supper club out of my apartment. That was like fine dining supper club and super like, ridiculous precious tiny 10 course meals and stuff yes which was great and incredibly fun <laughs> and then along the way i met so edible history which is the primary thing i do now is a primarily it was originally a supper club where we would pick a period in history and kind of explain that through food made from 
primary source recipes from original documentation from ancient Rome to 10th century Baghdad to 19th century New York. Right. Um, and it was actually originally started by my friend Victoria, who actually posted an ad saying, like, I need a chef for this historical food project called Edible History. She's a historian and my, obviously okay. my co-author with the book, and right. she does Edible History with me. And we met, and it was just an instant, absolute geek fest. Like, we'd watched all the same, like, ridiculous programs, and we listened to the same history podcasts, and we just were really interested, you know, in all the same stuff, you know? Okay. Um, so, before we get too too deep into that, right. I, I got to find sure. out this, sure. this question. So, you left L.A., mm-hmm. and you, how did you just start baking bread? Where did you go? Where, how did you start decide that hey, that was what you were going to do and, and, and how did you find the place to do it was i guess is more the question um i'm gonna dodge this question a little bit okay but it was like one of these weird like cooperative farms in the middle of nowhere okay that you can just go to um and live there and there's no cell service and it's very peaceful and it's a very controlled environment and i knew that they had like a big kitchen program and i knew that they had a bakery and I was kind of in the back of my mind, I was deciding whether cooking was something that I wanted to pursue professionally. Okay. Um, and I figured that was a good way of getting away from everything, reading a lot and like just learning like the, the, the real basics of cooking and baking. And, and there's something really fun about bread. Like bread is like nothing else. Bread is like having puppies. They're just these weird <laughs> little things that grow and they're adorable, you know, <laughs> I've never heard anybody describe it like that. That's oh, it's it's like this weird magical process where you take like three or four ingredients and you make this vast number of different kinds of loaves and it's inform them and shape them and they grow and you like bake them. It's really fun and it's really relaxing. And it's just, it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's a good thing. It sounds just right. like puppies, except for the baking part. Right. You know, <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know. It's that, a fair point. That, <laughs> depends on the menu, really. Yeah. But so when did you know it was time to leave? And, and how did you get to New York and, and, and in the fine dining world from uh, what, what it sounds like a collective? Well, like I knew I was good. Like I've the decision I was making was whether to go to cooking school. So I made the decision and I, you know, and I went to a cooking school, went to a a French pastry program. And that was so much fun. It was just such, that was, it was a great transition from the farm, you know, just to do that. Like that, that worked out really, really well for me. I was still kind of putting my head back together and it really, you know, it really worked out and I was still writing and doing other stuff. You know, I always juggle a little bit. Have you always been a a fan of history in general or is it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've always really been a big, like I've always been very interested in history and science and literature. And like, I think history gives you a kind of, critical thinking grasp on the world better than a lot of other things. I mean, sort of like basic, basic hard sciences. I just, I'm kind of flabbergasted when people walking around not understanding how things work, but that's just me. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you know, you had scientists as parents. Right. So it's like kind of a, you know, I kind of come by it honestly yeah. that way. Um, but yeah, no, I'm, I've always been very, very interested in, in history. It's kind of very relaxing to understand stuff and kind of gives you a kind of breadth of understanding the world. When did you start discovering a love for historical recipes? I think 
it was something that I first kind of stumbled upon when I started when I started thinking really seriously about food. Like the two things that I started to really read a lot about and investigate was like the really technical aspects of cooking, kind of this very sciencey and like modernist way of like looking at cooking. Also, the really funny thing about a lot of like stuff that we consider like modernist cuisine, a lot of the time it's just applying pastry techniques to savory food. Oh, wow. You know, really? It's like, oh, you measure it in grams. It must be a modernist. Like, wow, it's just <laughs> measuring stuff. But... <laughs> It's really weird, like the, the kind of like messing with textures in that way. So I was super interested in that. And then I got really interested in kind of like what the progression, you know, like if that's the future of food, the question becomes like, what's the past? Where, where did that come from? Where did that come from? You go back, you know, it's easy to say, oh, that's what the 80s food like. Then you start thinking, oh, what's the 50s food like? And then yeah. what's the 30s food like? And, you know, you start, you know, like what's classic? And then you find these crazy through lines, these things you would never imagine like mince pie is a very actually weird example that you okay. you know that it basically goes back to the middle ages when pies which were called coffins were inedible vessels just made with bread and water that you put stuff in an age before refrigeration you put a bunch of meat in something you seal it you bake it right with uh-huh. a bunch of if you have some sugar and spice amazing and that actually is now sterile inside and you can it will last much much longer than just leaving it out on the counter. Ah, I never realized that. That's fascinating. Yeah, and then it just became, you know, I actually have two, I have a Middle Ages recipe one, and the one I did was more of a 19th century one. And, you know, and now when you get a mince pie, if you go to store and buy mince meat, there's no meat in that. Like, what's weird about mine is I still make it with, you know, with some meat and some meat fat, but you would never know it. Like, I could serve you that pie, and you'd never know there was meat in it. It tastes like Christmas. It tastes oh. like the holidays. It's just, it's, it's really lovely. Oh, but you'd awesome. never think, oh, this has meat in it. But like, you know, if, if you go back and have one from the Middle Ages, there's a lot more meat in it, you definitely know. But okay. it's still, like, it would still have the same kind of spice profile. That's fascinating because when I think of, and, and I'm sure a lot of people are this way, when I think of old recipes, like you mentioned 30s, 40s, 50s, I'm thinking of, you know, salmon in gelatin and yeah, some of these dis- aspect, definitely yeah some of these dis- things that just sound absolutely disgusting but i was yeah. looking at some of the menus on the website that you have and it's it's amazing like for example the uh the tudor feast or the 15th century <laughs> italian feast i mean i never would have thought about some of this stuff i, I don't think of older recipes i guess I, Outside of things like suckling pig and, and, and roasting meats and stuff, I don't almost, I don't, you almost don't think of them as edible anymore. It's, it's, it's a weird... It's really funny. And of course, like we do pick and choose stuff that we think does work for a modern palate. And once again, there's no way of knowing if what I'm doing is exactly... You know, I do, I do a ton of research and I look at the scholarship, but... I think a lot of my things are, are a reasonably good window to the past. But no, there's food, there's ancient Roman food that's so sophisticated and so smart and totally delicious. And oh my God, don't get me started on 10th century Baghdad because <laughs> the cookbook from that is literally the most mind-blowing thing you will ever, it's really? insane. And it's also chock full of poetry, which is really awesome. Oh, wow. It's, but it's also like you read that cookbook reads like maybe a 17th or 18th century Western cookbook. It's literally 
It's got weights and measures. Like if you if you look at a cookbook from the Middle Ages in Europe, it's like take this and this and this and maybe a handful of this and put it together, cook it, serve it forth. And that was the whole recipe. Wow. Like five hundred years before that, in Baghdad, which and this is this is a Baghdad of like Harun al Rashid and like Thousand and One Nights, and, right, you know, yeah. beautiful people. You technically that's a couple hundred years before this, but we're talking about a super high culture. You, you have this giant book that's ten times as long as anything being written in the West at this point, yeah. with hundreds of recipes, with weights and measures, and specific. You know, do it this. Wow. It opens with a here's all the tools you will need for a kitchen. Here's all the basic techniques. It's like so ridiculously wow. modern. It's, it's genuinely amazing. And some of those recipes are, are really amazing. That's incredible. So, I'm, I'm, all my kids have taken Latin in high school, and they all have to do a project. And my oldest, who's graduating this year, a couple of years ago in her, at, in, in her first year of Latin, she had to do – she or she picked a, 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 res, a Roman recipe to cook. Apicius. Yes. I, I, well, I believe, I, I'm assuming <laughs> that's where it came from. I guarantee it's Apicius. That's the, the oldest cookbook in the world. It's, a, yeah, it's yeah. definitely Apicius. So yeah. it, it was some weird chicken dish. I don't remember what it was called. I don't remember if it was poem uh, front. Tony Onum or whatever, it was. but it was chicken and it had the grapes in it and it had, it was made with this, this oh, there you, there you go. <laughs> it was, I'm waving the book at him, podcasters. It is um, right in arm's reach. That's fantastic. But, oh, I, I just finished, I just finished my ancient Rome character. It's actually really funny. Here's a, a, a funny Latin thing. You guys should tell your daughter that, that um, I realized and I was doing a chicken recipe Oh no! I was, doing, I was doing the beets recipe that I that I worked together with the with the chicken recipe, okay. and the translation in English was beets cooked in mead. I mean, it was chicken cooked Ooh. in mead. I can't. Remember, one of them was cooked in mead. I, I just did this, and now I can't remember. Maybe it's both. And the funny thing is, this is the funny thing. And I was thinking about this because mead is normally a Northern European wine that's made from honey. Like you dil- you dilute honey with water and you let it ferment, and right, yeah. you know, it becomes it becomes wine. And you know, I, I actually don't read Latin particularly, and so I was working from a translation, and I cooked this, and I thought really carefully, and I'm like, do we have mead in Rome? They have a lot of honey wines, like wines that are mixed with honey and spices. Yeah. We did the mead, and I did a little research, and then I went and actually looked at the Latin translation, and the word was mulsum, okay. which was translated as mead, but is actually honeyed wine. And I'd already written the damn recipe, and I had to go back and change oh, it wow. because the Latin was mistranslated in my copy. Oh, which is wow. a amazing translation regardless, but it's kind of old. That is so, amazing. Yeah. It's, so we had your daughter remember it then. She oh. fixed it for me. Oh, yeah. They, <laughs> well, we had our own mishap with that because it called for the use of garum. Right. Which is... I have a whole- Ed bar in my cookbook on Garam. Oh, which we we were told. It, I mean, it's a like a fermented fish. It's fit, you know, Well, here's the funny thing. This is a and everybody people love to be horrified by Garam because yes, it is fermented fish guts. But do you like Thai food at all? Yes, I love Thai food. You like the funk of Thai food? Yes. You like that fish sauce they put in Thai food? Yes. Exactly the same thing. That's well. See, that's the thing. That's what we use as because I'm like you're. We're not ferment, spending six months fermenting fish cuts. Right. So, you can so, actually buy artisanal garum, but honestly, really, artisanal garum and like 
fish sauce you buy at, at, at the store almost the same well here's here's the thing that the issue that i had with it was more the measurement because i'm not sure exactly how much we were supposed to use but i'm pretty <laughs> sure we used a shit ton more than we were supposed to oh yeah <laughs> because, that's a problem <laughs> because all of a sudden my house smelled like a cannery and it, <laughs> <laughs> i mean it tasted fine but you had to get over the smell in the kitchen. Yeah. And my it's... daughter brought it to school and nobody would try it. I oh, ate, that's too bad. I did. I ate it and I told, and she tried it and we both liked it actually. But the smell was just Yeah. You might have had a little bit too much. I mean, it's, it's a very strong, it's a very strong, you know, sauce. Yeah. Like, you don't smell it. Like, when you walk into a Thai restaurant, it doesn't smell like fish sauce. No. Although when you open a bottle of fish sauce to cook with it, when you put it in something really hot for a moment, you get this yeah. blast of, you know, but then it's just, <laughs> it's just pure, you know, umami and like goodness. Getting back to, to your career and not my daughter's <laughs> uh, Latin project. You actually end up working with Wiley Dufresne, who is just... Yeah, when I said I worked at a, I, you know, um, I, I trained there. I was, you know, so I tried okay. what's called a stage, where you, like, go and you you get trained. Okay. Um, at at WD, uh, WD50. WD50. Yeah. yeah. When that was completely mind-blowing and amazing. Like, yeah. that was really hard but really fun and i really learned a huge amount that is, i can, i was because i was going to ask you i mean is, is that what you learn there is that applicable to what you're doing now with because he does a lot of like you're talking about modern things with his yeah. desserts some stuff yeah i mean i was i was in uh, malcolm um who then went to noma um, oh okay and um there's, you know, some of my approaches will be the same. And the funny thing is, like, you also have to remember that, like, you know, chefs in the past, you know, anyone who was you know, doing the kind of food that we do was a head of, like, a royal kitchen or at least a noble kitchen. And they probably had 30 people or 50 people or 100 people working for them, uh. including horrible jobs that was just turning a spit for eight hours right oh god yeah making garum hours. or yeah making garum <laughs> but um the funny thing is you know like one of the great kitchen innovations was replacing the spit boy the boy who turned the spit yeah. with a dog that walked on a treadmill that turned the spit i was like brilliant <laughs> a, you know it's like the latest modern kitchen convenience mechanization boy, small dog that's um <laughs> Man, now if you had a small dog in your kitchen, you get shut down. <laughs> this is also true. <laughs> so, I mean, I'll often do stuff. Like, I think even if you're just a home cook, it's really instructive to, like, just for fun, go make a cake with just a spoon. You know, like, if you, if you read, like, Mary Beecham or something, like what is, like, 19th century cookbooks, or, like, and now beat it by hand for 25 minutes. Yeah. You try doing that sometimes. That's horrendous. I tried making you know? whipped cream once by hand, and that was horrible. Yeah, like, that's, it's really like, funny. There's, like, a pastry, pastry guys who are like, you must always make whipped cream by hand, or at least we'll always finish it by hand. We'll get it almost there, and we'll be very persnickety about finishing it by hand. Right. It took me, it took me a while not to have to do that. I still, I felt <laughs> guilty if I used a machine to make it. But, yeah, like, making making some of those things by hand is really you know grinding there's this traditional two thing called a march paint which is basically ground almonds and sugar okay and like making a significant one by hand is an absolute nightmare and i did it once just to see and it was <laughs> so a lot of things like that that are worth doing ones just to see like wow this is really difficult but then it's just yeah. like the head chef once again isn't probably doing that like like even in my day job i don't do a, 
a huge amount of that kind of handwork. Right. right. I have people for that. Yeah, <laughs> you know? exactly. Uh-huh. I've got a question about the supper club scene. Sure. So your bio states that you are you were in the underground supper club scene. What was or is an underground supper club scene? Because I'm I'm imagining like a culinary version of Fight Club or something. Well, I mean, in a sense, yes. So, like my first my first supper club, um, which was the crazy, precious, you know, fancy pants, you know, <laughs> yeah, ten course tweezers on everything. One was. I mean, the thing is. You know, you can't legally charge to invite people over to your house to eat. You can't, you can't legally, you know. Right. Not that I did any of these things. Right. And of course not. But like, you know, you can't run a restaurant out of your house. Yeah. Basically. But people do, you know, and it's fun. So you just advertise in various places and you sell tickets through a thing and people come and, you know, and you serve them food and hopefully they don't die. And, <laughs> you know, and, and there's a surprising number of them. And a lot of people are trying to get restaurants and a lot of people are guys like me who are doing it, you know, who has a day job cooking something else oh. and is doing it to like enjoy, enjoy something, you know? And I kind of stopped that once I got really into the historical food thing, cause that just really clicked and we were having, you know, we got some really good press and we were making really crazy stuff. So it was a lot of fun. I don't know. So- <laughs> we'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. So how did you get hooked up with your partner with Edible History? So literally she ran an ad saying like, looking for a chef who's interested in historical cooking. And I was like, oh, that's me. (laughs) And we met and literally it was one of those just instant click things. Like we wanted to do, we had a a very, very similar vision. And we really shaped that vision together. Like we had this joke that it was like, we wanted food to be the gateway drug to history. Oh, we wanted people to taste something like I can't. It's, it's hard to imagine a better way of really connecting. If you're eating a meal that's the same as someone ate 500 years ago, and then the way it works is, as the courses come out, she comes out and gives you a, a thumbnail of the history of this time. Okay, which is really really good at and then i come out and i do a couple little like culinary things like i talk about garum for example (laughs) as we discussed or i talk about you know these crazy things or like i talk about pies which are totally amazing and like the whole for the tour one people you've you've heard about the you know the 420 blackbirds baked in a pie yeah which is totally a thing really another Another one they really like. See, Twitters loved spectacle. They loved, you know, food as theater. Uh. And pies were these giant, you know, cooking vessels. You could just put stuff in them, right? So you'd bake a pie and you just take the top off and you put something in it. Like a, a really popular one was live frogs. So you bring it to the table and you take the top off and all these frogs jump out and run across the table. <laughs> Another popular one was a dwarf who would come out playing an instrument in a pie. These are quite large pies. I was give an idea of how big a pie can be. You can look this up, but okay. famously, and I think this was at the meeting between, it's like the field of cloth of gold, and it was meeting between the English king and the French king in France, and they had a, they had a fountain that spewed wine, oh, and wow. they had a pie that was admittedly a very large pie that they opened, and they had a bunch of musicians inside who then began to play. Oh, my God. God, that's amazing. It's good to be the king. Yes, it is. 
<laughs> that's that's historical right there. Mel Brooks didn't what he knew what he was talking about. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, so I come out a little bit and I talk, and mostly Victoria talks, and people eat the food, and people I think they get some sense of connection with the, their past, and hopefully they then go and you know think I want to know more about whatever era that is, or just yes. history in general, just to get a sense of like we try to come at it from this very inclusive, this very like modern, you know, we don't talk about, you know, kings and battles and stuff. We talk about the habits of people, you know, okay. and what it's like to walk through a Roman market and what Rome uh, was actually like and ideas about that. And, and we do, you know, you want to throw in like, yeah, people really did like gladiators killing each other, but you know, Hey, we like football. Cool. That's exactly what she does. Exactly the example that she used. I would have said, I would have said MMA, but you know, yeah. See, I haven't gotten into MMA that much yet. So, oh, it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know what? I'm going to have to have you on and uh, Kelly Scott from Failure, the drummer from Failure. He's, oh, sweet. He's a huge MMA fan. So, I'll... actually, what you need is to find is a sumo fan that I can talk to because I'm, I'm a really irritating oh. sumo fan. I will. F okay, so sumo now... wrestling's amazing. Don't even get me started. I actually, so cool. I, I my dad used to work for a Japanese company back in the 80s, so I used to watch, I used to actually watch some. But oh, cool, yeah. I watch, I watch, it's the only sporting event that I consistently watch, actually, just because I'm a complete weirdo. Yeah. But it's totally, it's totally great. I only like college sumo wrestling. <laughs> I don't know. Those pro guys are doing it all for the money. Uh, so. <laughs> Do you actually, have, though, yeah. I'm, I'm totally not a sports guy. I'm just, I just weird affinity for so it's weird it's also my day job is I cook for Major League Baseball oh that's right it's, it's a huge amount of what I do as my day job and I know nothing about baseball <laughs> but don't tell anybody oh uh, no well we'll get yeah. that out so, <laughs> so how do you find the recipes that you use for edible history this is one of the things that's like we are so ridiculously lucky and spoiled to live in the era we do now because like I remember like when I was younger, one of my favorite things to do is I just would haunt libraries and just do weird research and stuff. And I was always looking for weird books on weird things. And, right. and it was like, you know, there was this time when you could, you could know more than other people because you, you were willing to put the legwork in. Yeah. And now it's crazy because like people should be ashamed for not knowing stuff because yeah. it's like, it's there in your fingertips. Like just press a button. It's just right there. Yeah. So, and it's not on Buzzfeed. <laughs> so the, the truth is, most of these, and, and once again, when I do historical cooking, I work from original documentation, often in translation, but original, you know, like for me to do it, I have to have, with one exception to the cookbook, but generally I'm working from a cookbook or an actual recipe that I find, and a huge amount is online. Some of the most spectacular cookbooks wow. in the world are either online, or at least you can buy them. Okay. The 10th century Baghdad one is not online and it's a little expensive, but it's really worth it. But like, if you want your mind blown a little bit, there's, you can look up the Epicurean, which is the cookbook uh, from, it was originally like published in like 1880 or something okay. from the head chef of Delmonico's. I've heard when, of it. When Delmonico's was like, you know, the fanciest restaurant in America, basically. Yeah. And it was everyone in New York. There was actually at one point there were seven different, Delmonico's. Oh, really? But, I didn't know that. Yeah, it was like, it was a chain. <laughs> but, <laughs> hey, go America. Uh, it was, uh, but this cookbook, and it's, it's online, it's PDF, you can just look at, you can just Google it, find oh. it, look at it. It's really worth looking at. Okay. Because it's also, it's in two volumes, they're each like a thousand pages. Oh, heavily illustrated. 
it's just it's it's such such a ridiculous level of cuisine you know like they were doing stuff then that was still so sophisticated and so difficult and they were really into these incredibly and and they they did these at a dinner once these incredibly complex cold dishes oh this like show foie stuff which was considered you know like the height of like the test of, of a chef's ability would be, you know, this kind of stuff. And okay. like, so the, the dish that I did was it's basically you take a quail and you bone it out, which is really difficult just to do a lot of them is hard. Right. And you fill it with like truffled force meat and some foie gras and I think some ham and you bake it in a mold. So it's a little semicircle, right? Okay. And you take it out of the mold and then you put, um, this, heavy white sauce with chauffeur sauce back in the mold and you, you chill it again in the mold and then you take it out of the mold and you decorate the top with this elaborately cut truffle and then you put the uh, aspic the stuff you made fun of with the yeah. salmon yeah. which can actually be quite good um, <laughs> and, and you put it back in the mold with that and you get this weird it, it, looks, it looks like a pastry it just looks like a bomb it looks like this okay. very very fancy pastry and it, i mean it's just it's technically just a very very difficult process wow. and that was incredibly fun the, the funny thing is technically i only did half the recipe because the other half of the recipe is it then says now take fat and wax and carve this holder for the little guys oh my god <laughs> They look like griffins holding scallops. And there's just a picture of this thing with griffins holding scallops. Oh, my God. That's beyond beyond my ability. Wow. I did once make a uh, St. Agatha bust about three feet high um, out of bread and um, (laughs) and sugar. Who's a Catholic saint who yeah. carries her breasts around on a plate because she was martyred by having her breasts torn off and then magically healed by St. Peter. I think I saw a picture of that. Yeah, it's in, it's in Vogue. Okay, that, <laughs> that was something else. Man. Yeah, that was cool. Do you have a, a, a problem finding some of the ingredients for some of these uh, recipes? Sometimes. Actually, yeah. Sometimes they're quite hard to source, and sometimes... Sometimes you have to use some kind of an analog. Um, the funny thing is certain of these herbs that aren't sold. And listen, I live in New York, so there's just some amazing places here. And you can yeah. get a ton of stuff off Amazon. But I literally had to order some of my herbs from a, like, a witchy. <laughs> <laughs> like, it came saying, like, moon magic on it. And oh, stuff. my God. Um, and it was just, it was like a Roman herb that was very common in there. And there's other stuff, like, there's another Roman herb that there's this huge academic debate about what it actually was because oh. it actually went extinct and it was so important. It's called laser or silphium and it was so important to their economy. Like there are Roman coins that just, you know, they just have a picture of silphium on it. Oh, wow. Um, but it, uh, it's gone now. Like there is no, so there's a lot of debate about what it is it's most people agree that it's probably pretty similar to asafoetida, which is uh, a root herb that you get in um, Indian cooking a lot. Okay, that was actually um, one of the things I was going to specifically ask you about. <laughs> what? The asafoetida, because I had no oh, idea yeah. how to pronounce it or what it was. It's, that, it, it's, it's a very specific taste, and when you smell it, you instantly know like, it's that taste from Indian food that people often call pungent. Okay. It's, it's this very... Like, it's not hot or it's just pungent. I'm trying to think what it's like, but it's like once you smell it, you think, oh, it's that Indian food 
smell. Okay. And not like the curry smell. It's not like a garam masala. Right. You know, it has this very specific... And my recollection is it is it's the sap from a root that is then dried. Oh, wow. I believe. See, because I, I was looking at the... Like I said, I was looking at the menus and I was just fascinated by them. And some of the the items on the menu, like the, the asafoetida, fermented maracuya, and leche de tigre. <laughs> those are actually, so, so, those are actually, so fermented maracuya, maracuya is just passion fruit. Oh, okay. That's just a Spanish word for, for passion fruit. And that's my, for my pre-Columbian ceviche. Because like pre-Columbian is a very fraught term and I don't usually use like, there's this idea of, you know, what people call, they used to call it the Columbian exchange or the Columbian circulation. Okay. I like to call it the Atlantic circulation, but it's just, but it's, uh, and I think like a lot of food nerds love to like tell people, you know, before, you know, the new world was discovered, that's in quotes. Right. Um, Italian food didn't have any tomatoes and the Irish people didn't have any potatoes because right. those are totally from the new world. And I mean, other stuff easy to forget. Szechuan food didn't have hot peppers. It had Szechuan peppers, but it didn't have no capsicum peppers, no spicy peppers, except black pepper, oh, pepper wow. which is a totally different plant existed. So, and then, you know, turkeys, pumpkins, and then we, you know, there was no, coffee there all, all these things that are now grown in that part of the world like coffee coffee comes from africa you know right 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 so but the, but the funny thing is it's you know that people that's easy to remember but then you forget that like we're talking about mexican food with no limes oh wow there's no citrus in, there was no citrus in in central america that's really? all from that's all from europe or i from, didn't know I that. Where citrus is originally dishes too but it was bought by the spanish wow. so the funny thing so they did have so I did this dish where I had three different, oh man, I have to say this again because I'm drawing a blank. You know, those things, the stuff with the thing, <laughs> you know. Um, so I did this dish where I had three different ceviches. Okay. And I had a ceviche that was quote unquote pre-Columbian, like before the conquistadors arrived and brought citrus. And, what they, and they would actually take fish and they would marinate it in fermented passion fruit juice. Which is very sweet and gets gets oh. pretty gets pretty acidic and will actually cook the fish with its acid right. the way you know they do with a modern one with like lime juice. Yes, right. right. The other one they would do is um, oh, it's fermented spit. Oh, that's another. That, well, it's it's actually fermented usually cassava or maniac or something where you're, you know, um, and and they still you'll see that in in Peru where they make this. Uh, this drink is mildly alcoholic and you're using your spit because you know, the, your spit turns starches into sugars. It's it, the same way. Like when you malt uh, grains to make beer, yeah. if you chew, if you chew starch, it turns the starch into sugar and you keep spitting it out. Then you have this milky liquid that then you can ferment and you could also preserve fish in it. Okay. I did I not I serve that to anyone, yeah. <laughs> but, but that's what they used to do. Wow. I remember now that you mentioned, I remember seeing that on, on like, I don't know, Anthony Bourdain Probably, or yeah, something like that. Always, they always, it's one of the ones you gotta, you know, yeah. you gotta do it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, if you're getting paid to, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Unless you did tigre, which means tiger's milk. It's yeah. just the modern, that's just lime juice and like, um, garlic and stuff. That's, that's, or it's the liquid. A lot of people will drink it like after you marinate the fish in it and they'll just pour off the kind of fishy lime juice and it's all you know it's got lots of onions and garlic and spices and it's delicious and um, it's just kind of a, it's kind of a hangover cure oh wow you know but 
Okay. I yeah. never, I didn't know that. That's fantastic. They're just like, yeah, the, the, the liquid from ceviche is technically called Leche de Tigre. It sounds cool. Oh, yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I, I, I figured Leche de Tigre, but the, uh, the fermented maracuya, that, my six years of yeah. Spanish for, apparently went out the <laughs> window. A specific word. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so do you often reject... And, and a recipe, do you ever look at something and go, I, there's just no way I can do this or that nobody oh, would yeah. eat this? Oh, yeah. Oh, I mean, you know, you have to pick and choose. I mean, whether it's the, the omelet of brains and rose petals. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt that's going to be good. It's not going to be a top seller. No. And there's, you know, other stuff, and other stuff might be good. It's very hard to get, it's very hard to get sow's udders these days. Uh, <laughs> I've found. Um, <laughs> you mean you, you can't just get that at the, at, like, the I have, grocery you store? Know, I have trouble sourcing stuff sometimes. But no, there's, there's a lot of stuff. And then there's other things where it just... It's just a different taste, but it's hard to, you know, it's hard to know. I, I go through and I, I, I try to be as faithful as I can to the recipes. And I, and I, like when I'm testing recipes, I'll, I'll test a bunch of them. I, I've gotten pretty good at being able to look at them saying, I have a pretty good idea of what I think this is going to taste like and whether it's going to be good or whether it's going to be interesting okay. or not. You know, people were making food because they liked it. You know, it's, yeah. it's like most of it's not, there's, you know, like once again, different cultures have different palates and there's a lot of stuff in certain cultures that I don't particularly like that are too, too strong for me, but not that many. Like I will eat, you know, and I'll try kind of anything. Oh yeah. I'm, but, I'm that way too. I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll give just about anything except maybe the fermented spit, but I will try just about anything. I've okay. actually tried it. Really? And it's fine. You know, it's, it's, it's fine. It's better. It's, it's a hell of a lot better than fermented fish. That's like, that's where I grew up. Uh, you know, it's like a sourcing and stuff like that. And the fermented shark. Oh, that oh, one, yeah. I, that one. I mean, I like, I, I think the real outliers what they have in common are those are from cultures that were, where there's real food scarcity. Yeah. Like the reason the Icelandic people eat fermented shark is there isn't a lot to eat in Iceland in the winter. Right. <laughs> it yeah. really isn't. And, um, and you, that shark can't be eaten raw or cooked. It has to be fermented. Oh, really? It's poisonous. Wow. For a really disgusting reason. Uh-oh. Okay, so what's the reason? It has a it has a incredibly high levels of urea in its tissues, which is the stuff we excrete in urine. Right. Yeah. So it like and urea when it it when when you leave it, it ferments into ammonia basically, okay. which then kind of send the off gases and stuff, and it's yeah. horrendous. But it's it, it, you can eat it. It becomes it becomes you know non poisonous. Wow! But it actually it would be like drinking eating unfermented that kind of shark would be like drinking concentrated piss. Oh man! And it was just, which is actually unhelpful. Well, yeah. You know, I, to do, I, there's a reason why we're excluding that. It is kind of funny. <laughs> so, oh man, it's like preparing gout. Yes. Oh, so, okay, so that brings up a question that I've mm -hmm. actually wondered a lot. How the hell do they f figure that shit out? Like, is it just trial and error, or because I think you know, I, like I think that's a question that people ask a lot about a lot of stuff, and it almost yeah. always has the same answer. I think I really do. Okay, people were really hungry. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah. like I, I suspect it is that someone who was really, really hungry. 
and knows that you can't eat that shark, knew wrongly that you couldn't, that you can't, they knew correctly that you couldn't eat it when it was fresh. And they had a really old, rotten one sitting around and they had nothing else to eat. And they're like, I'm starving to death. Fuck it, I'm going to eat it because starving people will eat anything. Yeah. They, you know, dirt, they chew leather, they bark off trees, you'll just eat anything. And they ate it and they were like, oh, well, it's horrendous, but like, we didn't die. I'm actually not hungry anymore and I didn't die. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so then the next time everybody was super starving to death, they were like, you know, last time we did eat that shark and it was okay. And like, maybe if we let it sit for a really long time, we can eat it. Yeah. I think it's always things, I think it's always things like that, that weird kind of trial and error. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, it's, it's weird to, you know, to remember that like real starvation was a thing through most of human history. Yeah. You know, and even in modern history, I mean, you forget there's, Russia's had problems with dietary cannibalism like three times in the, in the last century. Wow. So, <laughs> Jeez. At least, at least twice. I, that's a really good point because I, I'm thinking things like mushrooms. You know, some are poisonous, right. some are hallucinatory. So right. if and that's an actual Yeah. And some are somewhere in you between. Know. And so I, I'm just imagining like cavemen just sitting around going, yeah, don't eat that one. Fag ate that one and died. Exactly. So, and, oh, yeah, he ate that one and just went nuts for a couple hours. Yeah. So that he was okay. That was fine. Yeah. You know, you also have cooked at the uh, James Beard house. Yes. So how uh, do you get that invitation? And, and how intimidating is that? The funny thing is like, there was a time when it, when, like, it, like, it was one of my dreams. Like, I want to cook. Someday I shall cook at the, at the Beard House. Right. And the truth is, anyone can actually just apply. You know, you can, wow. you know, anyone from a restaurant or a cook or anyone, you know, you can send them an application and say, I'd like to cook there, you know? Um, Interesting. You know, and a lot of people do. Not everybody, I mean, they don't have, I think, I mean, they're closed right now, but they had like over 200 dinners a year, I think. So it's like a lot of people do get to cook there. But like prior to that, like when we were, we did a series at the Museum of Food and Drink. We were their artistic residents. We were actually their first artistic residents. Oh, cool. And we did a bunch of dinners with them. And there's some crossover between them and the Beard House. And there's some of the same people and they know each other. And the director of the Beard House came to one of our dinners. And oh, we awesome. talked to her, or the director of the culinary program, and, uh, and who is like uh, just a wonderful human being. Like she was just an amazing, wonderful woman. And they were like, "You should really, you should really apply," you know. And we did one, and it was it went great. It was so much fun. And um, actually, I'll tell you a funny story about that. Like the most modern solution to it to a. 19th century problem in all of history. But yeah, <laughs> okay. so, so we so we did we did one and then we we did another and we you know uh, I really I can't wait to cook, cook there again um, and I'm sure as soon as they have a got this cookbook coming out so we like to do some dinner celebrating that oh yeah um, that would be amazing so true story so the last the dessert so we did this uh, dinner that was the history of the 19th century restaurant basically everything from like tavern food to stuff from the cookbook that I mentioned, the Epicurean. And one of them was the Alaska, Florida, which is a bit, which is the original baked Alaska. Oh, okay. You know? And it's funny. It's like when I was a kid, my mom like thought that baked Alaska was like the most hotsy toxy thing, <laughs> you know? And I was kind of like, here, look, I could actually cook this thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and I did it, this original recipe and I made these little individual ones and I made them at my work. And I have a very nice, freezer at my work. It was very cold. Okay. I had these little molds and we went to the James Beard house and 
Like, their kitchen is actually not the greatest kitchen in the world because it's James Beard's old kitchen. And it's an amazing oh, wow. home kitchen, but it's like, and it, it's, you know, like ovens aren't great. And this, it's just. It's not industrial. You know, they, they've upgraded it a lot. And it is, it's, it's, it's like a small, nice little restaurant kitchen, but it's not. Okay. It's, it's, you know, it's not a modern restaurant kitchen. And their refrigeration actually wasn't great and their freezer wasn't that cold oh like no was, and we go to unmold them like what you do is you, you like wrap them in whipped cream and then you just put them in a broiler nowadays you would just hit them with a torch yeah. to torch the meringue on the outside without melting the ice cream okay and they were soft and the ice cream was starting to melt and i couldn't get them out of the molds and it was i didn't know and we didn't know what to do so then we're like wait <laughs> So there's a bar around the corner that we know that's this is very modernist bar and they okay. do fancy cool stuff. Yeah. And they always have liquid nitrogen. Ah. So we're like, quick, run over to the bar, <laughs> tell them like, you know, it's me and my friend John Hutt, who's like amazing, amazing chef. Who's he was the chef at MoFad and he's he's teaching robots to cook in Barcelona. Oh and he's just a remarkable, remarkable guy. We sent somebody over there. They came back with a doer of liquid nitrogen right before service. We just flashed. <laughs> Look at the whole room fills up with smoke. You oh, know, that liquid nitrogen smoke. Right, yeah. Everything worked perfectly. They came right out of the molds. We uh, wrapped them in meringue, torched them, sent them out. None, no one was the wiser. Oh, man. That's but awesome. But literally, it was literally the connection, which is not technically a 19th century ingredient. No. <laughs> well, okay. So speaking of that, at Edible History, do you use period implements to cook with, or, or is it a modern? Short answer, no. Yeah. <laughs> and the truth, and because what I always say No is dogs? The most, well, this is the thing. I would say the most common period kitchen implement throughout history is the slave. Ah. Or at least the indentured servant. You know, it's yeah. like, you know, most Roman cooking, yeah, it was done by slaves. Most, you know, most things were done by, you know, children or like things that I don't, you know, I'm, I, that I'm not in favor of. Yeah. Also, I mean, mostly I'm one guy. I usually have an assistant or two, you know, who I'm usually paying out of my own pocket or their friends or their people who, you know, want to try their hand at historical cooking. Yeah. And yeah. if you're in New York and you want to, uh, hit me up. Absolutely. Because I, I am recipe testing now and if anybody wants to hang out and like do some historical cooking testing. Oh, um, sweet. Totally down. I would definitely be in touch. Me and my wife, we, we <laughs> love this. Yeah. It's awesome. It's totally fun. I mean, it's really, it's really interesting. But so, so yeah, I mean, that's the thing is most of these guys, hey, we're cooking for like 200 people or at least 30 people. I think that's one of the things also, it's like, if I'm working from an extant cookbook in an age where, you know, a lot of these things, like before the 17th century, say, a book was a really valuable object. Yeah. And one thing to think about is what, who were most cookbooks written for in like say the middle ages, which is a really interesting question to think yeah. about for a second, because if you're a master chef in the middle ages, you started as a child, you've been doing this for 25 years, 30 years, or I mean, maybe 20 years as people have died. Maybe dead at 40. But if that cookbook has 50 recipes in it, say, or even a hundred, and, and the recipes don't have weights and measures, like take this, put it with this, cook it till it is done and serve it forth. Right. How, how useful is that book to you? As it should probably not very useful. No. So it's probably written for a couple other reasons. Books were a status item. They were like a fountain of knowledge. And, we, and that was also a time when women were starting to run, you know, were running these households. So it was maybe a tool for the woman of the house 
to maintain her staff and to control expenditures, you know, uh-huh. because remember, you know, if there's spices and stuff, these spices were incredibly expensive. Yeah. Like, a really good example. This is, this is probably, this is one of like the, the reasons edible history exists is to answer this one, this one mistake, which is lots of people will tell you, some have heard somewhere that in the middle ages, people used all those spices to cover up the rotten meat. Oh, okay. People, people, I've, I've heard this like a million times, which is, if you think about it completely wrong for a bunch of really obvious reasons, first of all, the spices you would use to cover up the rotten taste of meat, which also doesn't necessarily, that may, may cover the taste and still make you sick. True. Um, would cost more than the cow. Uh, I mean, that, I that think was worth quite literally its weight in gold in certain times. Like the city of Rome was once ransomed for something like 300 bags of black pepper for a city. Wow. You know, wow. maybe it's 3,000, but still, it's, still. you know, this is incredibly, incredibly expensive stuff. I mean, for, for, for you to be in England getting black pepper or nutmeg or allspice, it comes from an island off the coast of East Asia. Right. That's gone by boat to China or India, then overland through the desert, maybe to Egypt, where it took a boat to Venice, and then it got all the way across Europe to England in the Middle Ages. (laughs) (laughs) That thing is so valuable. And like, you grow cows. You have cows. That's true. So that's, that's one reason. The other thing is, remember that like, it's not like four people are ever sitting at a table if you're if you're rich enough to have spices and own a cookbook, you also have a castle or at least a manor house, right? Uh-huh. Yep. So and you have vassals and servants, and you would be served first and eating, but like there would be thirty or forty or fifty or sixty, seventy people eating at the same meal, kind of down the food chain. Right. So there wasn't a lot of meat left over. You butcher a cow, you feed a, you know, you feed people. It's a good you know? point. Yeah. It's not like there's meat like sitting around, you know. Yeah. And when they did want to preserve it, you would bake it in a pie. Yeah, you, exactly. So, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I came full circle with that one. That was fantastic. Well, <laughs> Edible History has 10 menus on the website. Do they change very often? Or oh, yeah, those are just ones we've done. We occasionally repeat them. Okay. But, um, so, like, our cookbook is coming out. Is, and they're, they're mostly different from that, but it's called A History of the World in 10 Dinners. Okay. So we have 10 chapters that are um, each one is a historical period. Oh, okay. So they're, they're different, but it's, you know, so we'll always be doing, doing more stuff. Like we have some ones that, you know, the, the Tudor one's very popular. The Silk Road one is great. The evolution of the 19th century New York restaurant one is super cool. R- Rome is really cool. The one where you uh, sew a, a pig to a turkey. Yes. That one's interesting. <laughs> yes, that is a, and it's funny. The picture is a pig to a turkey. Originally, that would, of course, be a pig to a chicken. It was actually a capon, which is a castrated rooster. Right, yeah. Because that recipe is from 1380. Wow. And turkeys had not come to Europe yet. Ah. I used the turkeys that wanted to be big, but yeah. it would originally be, and, and the one in the picture that you've seen, it would have been painted green, but that one wasn't. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Man, painting food. I'm not, I've never heard of that one before. 
Well, because it's it, the, the thing we're discussing is a cockenthrice. So yes. it's a mythical animal. And it's once it goes back to this idea that tutors and Henry VIII loved the cockenthrice. You know, he loved the idea that they're, you know, they'd eaten corpuses and, you know, this and that. And they'd run out of things to eat. So, like, I'm going to eat a mythical thing. Uh, so it wow. was something from, like, mythology, you know. So it was like this way of making a monster that he could then eat. That's why it was painted green. Another one that I've done, speaking of painting things, is actually from Halevon, which is like a 14th century, I believe, uh, French cookbook. Okay. And there's this thing um, I did. There's also a picture of it in the Vogue article that is usually translated as a helmeted cock. Oh. Because it is a, it's a rooster okay. riding a pig <laughs> with a lance wearing a helmet. <laughs> Man. And a shield. I think I saw that at Lollapalooza once. <laughs> Pretty much. And um, in the recipe, it actually says, like, if you're making it for royalty or nobles, you make it silver or gold. And if it's, like, for, like, rich commoners, it's, like, I think it's green. It's, like, orange or green or something. Or red. Oh, wow. <laughs> I made it silver. Uh, so you cook a lot from history. Do you ever, have, do you ever cook from fiction? Things like Game of Thrones. Sometimes, actually, sometimes both. And it's a very funny crossover that I do. And I have. I've done, actually, I've done um, Alice in Wonderland, which was a, uh, you see this great picture. So one of the best things from the Alice in Wonderland dinner was, if you remember in Alice in Wonderland, she drinks this drink that changes flavor as she drinks it. And it's all these funny flavors, like there's a turkey dinner, uh, caramel custard and cherry this and... And right. what I did, and this is a funny, I, I did it in a totally molecular way. And shout out, just because someone will point this out, Heston Blumenthal, the guy from Fat Duck, who was one of the great molecular genius chefs in the world, also did exactly the same thing that I did, although he, he had a better clarification system in his incredibly fancy restaurant um, <laughs> than I did. His actually looked like a single drink. It was amazing, you know. So what I did is I made a series of gels in each of these flavors. I infused the flavors into a series of gels, wow. and then I stacked them into a glass, one on top of the other, and I just told everybody to drink it with a straw. And as you drink it with a straw, first you taste one thing, and then you taste the next thing, and then you taste the next thing. And the, the difference was because my thing, the, they were actually different colors. Hester Blue was, all, was, was perfect pink. They all looked the same because wow. he had better te- technology than me. But <laughs> I simply put a label around the glass you couldn't see. Oh, well, hey, there you go. Yeah, much, you know, <laughs> much simpler. That, that works um, just so, as well. So I have done that. A funny thing from the ancient Rome dinner is I do a thing called Tromachio's Pig, which is um, from uh, Satyricon, which is this uh, satirical, hence the name, yes. Roman novel by Petronius. Yes. And one of the bits, it's, it's kind of a send-up of nouveau riche, you know, Roman dining. Because Romans had this funny thing, and they kept, they kept doing this thing, they kept doing these things called sumptuary laws, because Romans thought of themselves as like, we rule the world because we're like a martial people, and we're tough, and right. sleep on the ground on campaign. And, and they kept worrying, as, as a lot of cultures do, that their like vigor was being sapped by like soft living. Mm-hmm. So they kept like passing these laws, like you can't own fish ponds and you can't wear this kind of disease kind of clothes and oh, wow. you can't have a private chef. You can only have four courses at a meal, not 10. And oh, all wow. these, like, very specific laws, which they would then immediately break. And right. they did this <laughs> over and over again. So the Tromalchio's feast scene in Petronius is this like 
send up of this kind of nouveau riche guy who's got a lot of money is trying to show off. And one of the famous scenes from it is the, the chef comes out and with a big roast pig. And he guts the pig, or he starts carving the pig, and the guts fall out. And it the out, he's like, oh, you're a terrible chef. You forgot to gut the pig. I'm going to have you killed. You know? And wow. uh, so the chef is like, no, no, I'll do it right now. Just hang on one second. And he starts to work. And then it turns out that all the guts are actually sausages that he's cooked and put uh, inside inside the pig. Oh, wow. So I've done that. I do this as a freestanding gag where I just have a pig like standing up. Yeah. Like this roast pig standing up and I slit the belly open and I, I, I usually I tie a string to it so it's easier. I slit the belly open and I pull and all the guts fall out and the sausages <laughs> we serve it. So that's that is ancient, awesome. and, and I use an ancient Roman recipe for sausages, but the, the dish itself is completely from literature. It's not, it's not. Oh, okay. Safe. So any, any, any like Dr. Seuss things coming up, like three decker to sauerkraut and toast oh, sandwiches? Oh, <laughs> but, um, no, I mean, we did, we, we did a Downton Abbey one once cause I like to do like the weird 19th century yeah. stuff. I mean, the funny one that's also a funny crossover is for the 19th century restaurant one, we did mock turtle soup, which is totally a real thing. Yeah. yeah. But if you remember in Alice in Wonderland again, you have the mock turtle mm -hmm. at the mad tea party with a, with, with a mad hatter. And the mock turtle is a big giant sea turtle with a calf's head. Yes. And the reason for that is so turtle soup in like the 19th century was like the, it was like the hotsy totsy food. Okay. And that was one of the first eras where like you, you had a burgeoning middle class and you had people like trying to show off with their home chefs and like, you know, it was, it was definitely like, you know, a social climbing kind of thing to like uh -huh. have fancy food. So if you couldn't afford turtle, like giant sea turtle, they would make mock turtle, which is fake turtle. And the funny thing is the most prized part of the sea turtle was the gooey gelatinous part around the collar. Okay. So mock turtle soup is basically you take a calf's head and you boil it. Oh. For like a day. <laughs> um, until it just goops. Until, okay. it's, until you just peel everything. It's the same as making head cheese, basically. Yeah. It's a soup. Okay. It's this gooey, mushy. It's actually quite delicious because it's, it's a pork stock and it's it's really good. Okay. Finish, finish with a little sherry, but that's that, that's why that's why the mock turtle in the bad tea party has a has a capsule. Ah, uh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So it, menus at Edible History is it something that you make when people? make reservations or is it something that no, we're like a, we're more like an event so like every like we used to do it like every month or every other month we put out a newsletter saying we're going to do a dinner this is what the theme is going to be okay. this is how much it costs and we usually do it for i mean the biggest thing we did was like 105 people but normally it's like 30 to 50 people okay you know um because it, it doesn't like make sense to do it for more than that also it does involve it's almost like a theatrical event. Like Victoria comes out and talks through the whole thing. So it's not That's like awesome. we could be a, if we were like a regular restaurant, like she'd be talking every day and it would kind of suck. Yeah. You yeah. know, and we wouldn't be able to write cookbooks and have a day job. So the cookbook, that mm -hmm. sounds fascinating. How, how many, so you said it's like 10, it's going to be 10. It's a history of the world in 10 dinners. How far along are you with it right now? Um, I'm working on the fourth chapter. Okay. It will be out in about like two years. It was just acquired recently. It was, and we had 
nonfiction books, you do a book proposal. Mm -hmm. So we wrote two chapters and the intros and a complete structure of the entire book, a list of every recipe that's going to be in the book Uh and like a mission statement, all this kind of stuff. And then someone acquires it and then you write the rest of it. Okay. So we'll, we're, we will be delivering it in approximately so you are to the publisher and then they, they have to, you know, to do all the photography and yeah. editing and decide when it comes out. So it's, it's a weird process. So, but at this point you already know what the recipes are going to be. Yes, but I okay. have to, so I'm doing recipe testing uh-huh. right now. Which is why I'm saying if people want to come hang out in the kitchen and <laughs> test some food, come on down. Excellent. Excellent. You say it's like a, it's like a history of the world. What, what, where does it start and where will it end? It Yours. starts with ancient Rome. Okay. Was, uh, I'm going to get this wrong. That's the funny part. <laughs> ancient Rome, 10th century Baghdad. I forget the order of the next chapters. It's either medieval, like medieval Venice and then, or like medieval Italy, and then the Silk Road, which is Silk Road is all the way. We basically go from India back to Venice across, and we do like like the Mongol Empire, oh, wow. and uh, we touch on 13th century Baghdad, and then we're doing um, Al Andalus, which is Muslim Spain. Oh. Which people forget that you know Spain was a Muslim caliphate for yeah. 700 years. Yep. Doing that. The Colombian Exchange or the Atlantic Circulation of of dishes. Okay. Um, Ethiopia. Oh wow. Uh, the, the Ethiopian Empire. Although the, the meal that we're doing is a famous feast that happened in the 19th century, but we're talking about the history of the Ethiopian Empire back to like the fifth century or something. Okay. Um, Versailles. Ooh, wow. That's <laughs> um, I'll come visit you and when you test that one. 19th century New York. I hope that's 10. <laughs> I wasn't keeping track, but it's close enough. Yeah. So you're going to add any poetry? You're going to add any poetry to it? Oh, I, I, I do talk about the poetry <laughs> for that book. That book is so amazing. Um, <laughs> but perhaps. Ah, I, I know two poets. I'll look you up. <laughs> <sighs> so where can people keep up with what you're doing? Um, find out the keep uh, progress of the, the cookbook and... and Edible History NYC Instagram, I believe. My Instagram, Jay Rifle, J A Y R E I F E L. I post silly pictures on that, and as I mean, I'm posting all my recipe testing on that. Okay. Um, well, the, so the photography is beautiful probably, on it too. Oh, thank you. It's just the stuff's cool. <laughs> um, we'll see your film background's yeah. coming in because it, the, <laughs> it, the lighting's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those are Instagram folks are great. <laughs> so yeah, that, that's the best. That's definitely the best way to follow our stuff. You can um, look at the Edible History website and um, contact us there. Excellent. All yeah. right, man. Well, this has been a blast. I actually learned a hell of a lot. So this is just really cool. Thank you so much. Uh, next, next, I'll talk about the literature stuff. Yeah. <laughs> next time. Well, yeah, we'll get, we'll get, you get back on. We can talk some sumo. Yeah, let's talk sumo. <laughs> uh, you should, you should, you can read my crazy books. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right, so what, what else do you have out there that people can look at? No, I mean, I like, you know, a couple of stories published, but uh, you can, uh, please don't watch my movies. They're really <laughs> not good. Um, <laughs> The effects look like they're done on like an Atari 400. Oh, 
<laughs> I mean, that's what drove me crazy about that whole thing. Is it's like I did, like I did write things that I was really proud of. I even sold things that I was really proud of, but those never got made. And the ones that got made are stuff that like I wouldn't want you know anyone to watch. So yeah, it's kind, of, kind of depressing. You know what's funny? On on like Beat Bobby Flay at the end, the director comes up to you and says, "Look." You're going to say, I'm Jay Rifle, and I just beat Bobby Flay, and you're going to yell it. And if you don't yell it, I'm going to keep you here, and you take after take after take, and hear you yell it. So I scream my head off like a fucking moron. So, and it's I funny, anyone who, anyone who knows me is just like, that is so not Jay. I didn't even really that. ask you about how that whole process works. Oh, um, uh, it was really funny. And then they do they, then they do ADR for like hours afterwards. You, you basically retell, you narrate the whole thing, and... You go through everything, and then they do, they do like they have you say little words and phrases. Yeah, and to give them a good, um, this is really funny. To give them a good edit on the like a sound edit, they want you to basically to make it easy to edit. They want you to say something with a hard, like a hard consonant, right at the end. So they go now to say like, so I won carrot, and you, and you say yes and carrot. Oh wow, I'm rifle carrot. And you just do this for, for like an hour. Oh that, my! That whole shooting there was like fifteen hours. Oh, right, so I, I've got I've got a question about this because I've seen some weird recipes on that show. Yeah, you know yours yours was weird, but I've seen some other. I've, I've seen ones where I swear to God they did. It sounds like they just made it up then and there just to be. No, it has to be something that people that's a that's a standard recipe that people have heard of. It has to be something like that. And the way it works is you submit five recipes basically. That's it's what I was. Three or five. It's three or five. I forget. You submit three or five, like you do an interview and you submit three or five recipes and then they they pick one. Okay. And they say, like, we'd like you to do this recipe. And then you send them the recipe. So, because they assemble all, if you need a weird ingredient, yeah. they assemble that for you. Because I've seen um, that when I'm like, there's no way they've got this weird ass cheese just sitting no, there. No, like, you tell them, you give them an exact <laughs> recipe. So you tell them exactly, like, I, I told them, like, I want port, I want cheese, you know, I want brandy, I want these specific things, I need dried cherries, I, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, you tell them beforehand exactly what you need. So they have it there. Yeah. But they do, like, that show is legit, though, in terms of, like, they. He he is doing that. Like he doesn't know. It's yeah. not a it's not a setup. And they're like, don't say anything. Like when you're near him, like we don't want him to figure out. You know, it's like I started to say something. And they're like, <laughs> so the judge is a monster. I mean, he's really he's oh. he's legit. Like he really is that good. Like, he, it's very impressive. I can never do that. There you are know? there are a few celebrity chefs and all that that I would just love. To, I've eaten at some of their restaurants, but I would love to eat something that they themselves made. And yeah. you know, he's one of them. So yeah, but the other guy, when I was in Chopped, one of the judges was like Jeffrey Zakarian. Yeah. And like everything he said, I was like, God damn it. Yeah. (laughs) I I was actually very very impressed. He he was very cerebral and he he just, he was, you know, he wasn't riffing. He wasn't playing to the crowd. He was just like, this is, you know, these are the issues. This is good. This is bad. And you're like, yeah, you're, you're right. He knows so, his shit. I have a lot, I have a lot of respect for him too. So, so the, the judging on like Beat Bobby Flay, when they do the cuts back to the chefs, you can tell that, you know, they're like smiling when they, they, yeah. are the judges, are you guys separated so the judges cannot see the reaction so that they know, they don't know whose dish is who, or are they just sitting there and... Because for which for for which bits when you um, like when they're when they're eating when the judges are eating the uh, 
the dish that that's up against Bobby. Yeah. You'll see them saying, "Oh, this uh, this was cooked perfectly," and then you'll see the the chef that made it like big smile on the face, or you're like, "Hmm." Those are all cut. Yeah, it's all it's all cut. It's all cut back and forth. It's all you know, and, and like a bunch of that stuff. Yeah. Because I was wondering if the judges can actually see the chef's reactions, because that would be a, to me that would be a dead giveaway. You know, obviously. I can't. I know. I think no. I think they actually do the. I'm trying to remember exactly. I think they do the actual judging. When you're, I can't remember if you're there or not. That's really funny. <laughs> it's like, at that point, I was just like, I was tired and it yeah, was a blur. I can imagine. Um, and there is a lot of weird, you know, a lot of weird back and forth and hurry up and wait. And, yeah. you know, how much time is there between when you're going up against the other competitor and going up against Bobby? I think it's like half an hour. Okay. That's not that bad. It's not that much time. Yeah, it's like, it's like half an hour, an hour, like you just chill for a second. And That's then you, not that bad. You, you just do the next one. Awesome. Well, look, yeah. I, I, I could talk to you about this yeah. shit all day long. So uh, thank you oh. so much. That was so much fun, man. I really had a great time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.